Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along We're really fortunate to have a special program for you today, a feature we bring you every three months when Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio sits in for me for Spirit in Action. Really, Peterson does incredible work tracking down and sharing innovative, creative, and profound voices and minds grappling with diverse aspects of climate change. Today's show is particularly gripping, with the best lineup yet of off-the-beaten-path guests and topics. And I'll note that the first guest he'll be talking to today is from just about 75 minutes up the road from me. I'm here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, while the guest, Aaron, is from up in Birchwood, Wisconsin. Peterson Toscano sure scooped me on this native son, climate activist. All you listeners are so fortunate that he shares his gifts of reporting and commentary so generously. So thanks so much, Peterson, for sitting in today. Well, thank you, Mark. It is excellent to be back here at Spirit in Action. My name is Peterson Toscano. I'm the host of a monthly show called Citizens Climate Radio. On our show, we look at climate change, but not from angles that you normally expect. So, for instance, in our show today, you're going to hear from a race car driver. A race car driver who's concerned about climate change, so much so that he's actually charging himself a fee for all the fossil fuels that he uses. You're going to hear from an artist. She's a sculptor who is designing and building solitary bee habitats. A playwright is going to speak about the Arctic and about the amazing ways that we can help people understand climate change through art, particularly through narrative storytelling and plays. And you're also going to hear from a man who went out west to Oklahoma expecting to witness a controversy between the oil people and the wind people. And he discovered that there was no controversy. So let's begin. Racers, start your engines. Today on the show, you are going to meet an unlikely climate advocate, an indie car racer. Meet Aaron Tellitz. Originally from Birchwood, Wisconsin, when he was just a kid, Aaron demonstrated his ability to move quickly. He grew up at a fishing resort and could fillet a bluegill fish in 25 seconds. Wanting to experience the thrill of more speed, Aaron turned to amateur car racing, which led to a career as an indie race driver. When I was growing up, I started racing go-karts, and when I got into car racing, the most simple or the most logical path was this 
system called the Mazda Road to Indy, and there are Mazda scholarships that you can win along the way to help drivers out in funding, because funding is a huge part of racing. I was curious to talk to Aaron about his racing because he is a driver who is also committed to addressing climate change. I was confused. Other than an airplane, I couldn't imagine a means of transportation that used much more fuel per mile. It seemed so strange to me. You know, obviously, it is strange that my career path is me rocketing around a racetrack in a high horsepower race car that's burning fossil fuels. But I'm also a huge advocate for renewables. Basically, I I love the idea of a carbon fee. I don't want humans to to leave the planet worse than than we started off with it, which I think we've been seeing that happening, where in the past we didn't really know we were doing it, where now we know what we're doing and we just need to change it. To be honest, I don't think racing is the problem. To To be honest with you, racing pioneers a lot of the technologies, I think, that goes into vehicles to make them more efficient. Any of the energy recovery systems that are in your Prius or or anything like that. Formula One's been using it now for, for years and years and making it better and better. Each each lap in Formula One, they regenerate something like 200 horsepower of electric energy that they then use the next lap. I think they're kind of pioneering the way for making cars more more and more efficient. I, I don't think that, that racing is, is that detrimental. Yes, we are rocketing around burning fossil fuels, but I think that the good of uh, the technology that goes into race cars can help. Uh, I know quite a few drivers that are, are think a lot like myself, and we'd like to do something about it. We don't want to be viewed as the bad guys that are, uh, you know, just burning all the gasoline and uh, don't care about the planet. I admit I know very little about professional car racing and the different types of races out there. Aaron broke it down for me. NASCAR is American-based, obviously, stock cars. IndyCar is kind of North America, so there is a IndyCar race in Canada, but mostly in the United States, IndyCar racing. And that's open-wheel racing, so there's no fenders on those cars. They look kind of like rocket ships on the ground, basically. Uh, and then Formula One is a worldwide championship, so they race on virtually every continent except for Antarctica. And it's a really long season, and those cars are also open-wheel cars, but slightly different than IndyCar, where each team in Formula One has to design and then build their own race cars and then compete with, with those cars. So each team has their own car, basically, where in IndyCar, there's one chassis manufacturer called Dallara that makes all the cars, and then there's two engine manufacturers, Chevy and Honda, that supply the engines. Indy cars and Formula One cars look similar to uh, most people. They would think they're kind of the same cars, um, but there are some some big differences there. These past two seasons, Aaron has advanced quickly as a professional race driver. This was the highest level of racing that I've been involved in. Indy Lights, that's one level below IndyCar. That would be like AAA baseball or minor league hockey or um, you know college football whatever whatever uh, uh, sport you want to compare it to it's it's the level just before uh, the big leagues the pros so it was it was tough but I won the first race of the year I won the last race of the year I came in second place in our biggest race of the season at Indianapolis Speedway so lots of highs but uh, quite a few lows that held me back from finishing 
a little higher up in the championship than I would have liked, but obviously still still a great season. I would say last year was probably my biggest season uh, of my career, winning the Pro Mazda Championship last year in 2016. I asked Aaron about his car. The Indy Lights car is a Dallara chassis. That's an Italian race car chassis builder. It's a carbon fiber tub. The chassis of the car where all the parts bolt onto is all made out of carbon fiber. All the bodywork, the wings, everything is made out of carbon fiber as well. So it's a very, very light car. The engine is a Mazda uh, two-liter engine that's turbocharged, and it produces 450 horsepower with a 50-horsepower push-to-pass assist. So it can make up to 500 horsepower. And the entire car itself, plus the driver, uh, weighs about 1,350 pounds. So the power-to-weight ratio is uh, pretty good there. And we use uh, Cooper tires, so big Cooper slick tires, so there's no tread on them when we're in dry conditions. Uh, you can create more grip with slick tires, actually. And then when it rains, uh, we have treaded tires that would look more like what you'd see in your car. It's got a six-speed paddle shift gearbox. Uh, we only use the clutch when we leave pit lane and get on t- onto the racetrack. And then after that, uh, you're just flapping, uh, flapping gears with the paddles on the wheels. Flapping gears with the paddles on the wheel. I'll have to use that sometime. Now, exactly how fast does this car go, and how much gasoline does it use? The the fastest speed that I went this year was 212 miles an hour at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and that's uh, that's obviously an incredible speed. Uh, but Indy Lights cars, they're a race car, so the gas mileage figure is obviously going to be in the single digits. But when you think about how fast the car is going um, and how much horsepower it's making, to still be getting, let's say, you know, three to four to five to even sometimes six miles to the gallon when you're going that fast, depending on what kind of track you're at and how much uh, full throttle time there is. Honestly, that's not that's not too bad when you think about it, because think about your car that you're only driving maybe 60 or 70 miles an hour. And let's say it gets, you know, 25 to 40 miles to the gallon. Yeah, that sounds great. But if you tried to get that car and that engine to go 212 miles an hour, it would have to drink so much fuel to go that fast that it, it, it the, it's not that efficient. I think race cars are extremely efficient. A lot of people don't equate efficiency with power, but they should because the more efficiently you can burn fuel, the faster the car is going to go. So really using the fuel efficiently is something that race cars do pretty well. When I spoke with Aaron, he had just finished his daily workout. Turns out he needs to keep himself in good physical shape for car racing. And he needs to keep his weight to a minimum. I assumed it was to keep his car as light as possible. Well, the weight actually has more to do with uh, the seats that we make. So in our cars, there isn't a, a set seat that you sit into. When you get fitted into uh, an Indy Lights car or an Indy car or any open wheel car, you basically sit in the car with a bag full of these little uh, foam beads or space beads in a bag and then they add a resin that goes in and they suck all the air out and when the air goes out it reacts and it forms to your body so you have a custom made seat and so if you lose too much weight or you gain too much weight your seat no longer fits you and it's very expensive to make another one of these seats so um, really at the start of the year whatever you weigh and you make your seat you don't want to change that body type too much throughout the rest of the season so I weigh about 150 pounds and I keep it right there at about 150 uh, all year it's hard to eat 
healthy, honestly, on uh, on race weekends. You're you know you're not at home. You're going out to eat a lot, and it's easy to uh, load up on a lot of carbs, which is good for uh, you know lots for exercise the next day. But then if you keep carrying that out and eating way too many carbs, that can slowly build up if you're not working it off or having a good workout regimen. So uh, I try to limit my carb intake. I would say that's the one thing that I stay away from. Stay away from sugars. Try not to eat a ton of bread, although I love pasta and pizza and all of that food that has tons of carbs in it. So that's that's a bit of my weakness. I'm glad I have something in common with a race driver. Aaron decided to do something radical this year with his racing. At the beginning of the season, he chose to impose a voluntary carbon fee on his car. He learned about Citizens Climate Lobby's proposal to put a fee on carbon usage per ton. He agreed he would charge himself $15 for every ton of carbon he emitted. He was surprised how little the fee actually cost him in the end. Uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is working on getting a carbon fee and dividend enacted. So I thought I would take that exact model and put it into basically offsetting my carbon footprint in in racing this year. So we calculated how much fuel we used in in all the races this year and how many sets of tires we had to use, you know, tires made of oil, that there's going to be a carbon footprint involved in that. We we added it all up and I think it was 600 gallons or so of, of fuel, 60 sets of tires, somewhere around there. And, and for, so this is just for a race car. For, for an entire race car for a whole year, I think the carbon fee came out to, I think it was under $300. And we're talking about a race car that's burning tons of fossil fuels using huge tires. And the fee still comes out to be not breaking the bank when we're talking about race cars that cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And over the course of the season, it cost the team over a million dollars to run this car. And the carbon fee that would go along with that is tiny compared to to the rest of it. So I was really surprised about that. That should kind of take some of the scariness that people think when they hear a carbon fee and and they hear about how much we're we're polluting. I don't think they understand that the fee is pretty reasonable um, that would be associated with it to just kind of get people to curb their, their habits to a more renewable sense. So it's a great idea and I'm glad that I did it and all the proceeds my carbon fee will be going to citizens climate lobby um, so they can continue to work on getting a real carbon fee enacted in the united states aaron's cousin dan hersher is a volunteer with citizens climate lobby he helped with the calculations he reckons aaron used a little less than 15 tons of carbon based on the racing fuel and tire production for fuel he figured 15 cents per gallon tires were harder to figure in He eventually found some EPA data on tire production. Aaron used 58 sets of tires. After adding all the numbers up, Aaron paid $224.09 as a carbon fee. If he were to follow the CCL model, he would then need to raise the fee another $10 to $25 a ton for next season. Yeah, I would plan on doing it again next season. I, I like the idea of it being a set system where they know you know exactly how much it would go up each year uh, to kind of curb your 
amount of fossil fuel use. Obviously, in, in racing, it would be difficult for us to be competitive and curb our fossil fuel usage. Obviously, I don't know what we would do. There's no way we can change how many sets of tires we use um, or how much fuel we burn, really. That's just a set amount. But I am perfectly okay with the uh, amount of, of carbon fee going up the graduated amount that it should. And uh, I, will, I will continue to do it next year as well. Of course, indie car racing could advance to electric racing cars like the Formula E series. With car producers like Tesla, there is new technology, and it's rapidly advancing. I think it's uh, an incredible new form of racing. Uh, and when they have pit stops, they actually just the driver gets out of a car and goes and gets into a, a separate car that's already fully charged. You know, we just don't have the technology to know how to charge batteries extremely quickly uh, without there being some sort of a danger if things go wrong. So uh, it's, a, it's a cool series, and I would like to go and see it. And I know the cars keep on getting faster and faster, a lot faster uh, every year as the technology and batteries and electric uh, motors uh, continues. To be honest, electric energy has a lot more torque than uh, internal combustion engine has because an internal combustion engine needs to kind of ramp up the power or get it going, get the engine spinning to to get things moving. Where an electric engine, you just get the power in and it's immediately there. There's no weight. There's no lag. It's, it's all there, ready to go without uh, any time to waste. So uh, a Tesla accelerates so fast. I'm sure if you've been in one, you know, you press the pedal down, it's immediate you're just taken off flying so i I really like uh, electric cars and if i had enough money i would uh, buy a tesla right now aaron has accomplished a lot in a little time i asked him about the future and about climate change does he think we will do what it takes to transform our energy economy Absolutely. And, and and throughout history, whatever problem that humans have been faced with, we've found solutions to it. So I don't I don't give up hope on, you know, our addiction to to carbon at all, because I know that if the right plans are put in place and if people really see the actual danger that can happen, that is happening right now. I have no problem believing that uh, humans will find uh, the solution to it and uh, we'll all be better off for it. You can learn a lot more about Aaron at his website, AaronTellitz.com. Tellitz is spelled T-E-L-I-T-Z, AaronTellitz.com. I love when art and science meet. At a recent sustainability conference in Cortland, New York, I met Emily Patoff. She is an artist, a sculptor to be exact. Emily also knows a lot about bees. She gave a presentation about the need to create more bee habitats. She also explained why bees matter. They pollinate about a third of our food. A hundred different crops are pollinated by bees and 85% of plants are affected by bees. So if you think back to your morning breakfast, what would that be like without bees? What would you be eating now? Rocks. Rocks. (laughs) Um, Why are they disappearing? There's multiple factors. There's uh, monocultures, so lack of biodiversity um, because of monocultural agriculture. There's lack of forage, healthy forage, and lack of habitat because of that. 
there's a lot of toxins in our environment that affect the bees. Um, there's climate change. So when the, the temperature goes to 70 and then it dips to 20 at night, you lose a lot of colonies because of that. And um, I think one of the main, the main things is our own sort of distraction and disconnection from our immediate natural environment. There's a difference between honeybees and the, and the bees that we're um, making art for. So honeybees live in huge colonies of 50,000 bees. They may, they're the only bees that make honey because they need that honey to overwinter for the whole colony to survive the next, next winter. Now, if you're making public art, you're not going to put honey beehives in the public, right? So 50,000 bees that somebody could like go against the hive and tap on, you know, get <laughs> murdered by angry <laughs> bees. You're not going to do that. So um, we decided to focus on solitary bees. And solitary bees make up 90% of the bee population, but they, no one really notices them. So there's sweat bees and carpenter bees and mason bees and digger bees and leafcutter bees, and they're everywhere. And they're very docile because they don't have a colony or a queen to protect. They don't have resources to protect. They're really amazing pollinators, better than honeybees, because they have more hair, and they're not as efficient as honeybees. Honeybees take all that pollen, they pack it on their legs, and they zip right back to the hive. They give every bit, everything back to the hive. Solitary bees, they exist for one season, and they just want to have sex and eat some food and roll around in flowers and go from flower to flower. So they're amazing pollinators, and they're hyper-local. Uh, they only go about 250 yards from their habitat, whereas honeybees will go three miles. Emily and a student at New Paltz University were awarded a grant to work on a particular project. Our goal was to research and build bee habitat prototypes to encourage resilient pollinator communities. Um, we re researched local pollinators, habitat requirements, pollinator plants, sustainable materials, and the impact of bees and bee awareness. As she spoke, Emily projected a series of images of these bee habitats. Some of them look like giant ice cream cones with straws packed inside. Others look like flowers from out of a Dr. Seuss book with little holes all around them. The long tubes in the habitats each can house a bee, so it's like a bee condo. And this is an example of a solitary bee habitat. So they nest and um, they lay their eggs in these reed-like structures or in the ground and leave the cocoons there and then die for the winter and then the cocoons emerge in the spring or summer. The first step was to figure out what type of forms bees liked. They also needed to experiment with different materials, which had mixed results. We harvested some local uh, materials on campus, so that's some clay from our pond, and we realized when we were getting out of the pond, there's huge snapping turtles in, in there, um, so we won't go back. <laughs> but, um, uh, and then there's this big bamboo plant in the atrium in New Paltz, and we harvested that um, to make some of the reeds with. And we wanted to make really simple, simply designed and simply made prototypes because we want to eventually teach workshops on how to build your own. So we're, we were trying to design for DIY building. Using 3D printers, they began to make and test prototypes. But then Emily took the project to the next level. 
In 2016, I co-founded the Hudson Valley Bee Habitat, and it's an artist collective. It's three artists, myself, Elena Sneezik, and Jen Wooden. And our mission is really to pollinate engagement with bees through public art and mindful arts programming. So we want to help save the bees through the arts. They took their ideas to Kingston, New York, where a new green line is being created around the city. And the green line is a rail trail network that goes through the former rail lines that uh, snake through Kingston, and it'll be turned into um, walking and biking trails throughout the city of Kingston. Eventually, it'll lead out to um, the Ulster County Trails and the Empire State Trail that Cuomo's talking about. So it's, it'll run right through there. So we are going to site bee habitats along the green line as the bee line. We're not just going to be like, show up and hey, we're the Hudson Valley Bee Habitat. Here's your bee habitat for your community, right? Because that never works. And people don't want that. They want they want some um, ownership over what what goes in their community. And so, a big part of our project is public engagement. One part of our programming is we're going to develop an apprenticeship program. So we want to work with local teens, um, teach them how to design and build these bee habitats. So they become the designers. They become the ones who are creating these things for the public. And we'll just be the lead artist that sort of facilitate that, that creation. I love this image of these lead artists facilitating a community art project that brings life to the region. The project is ambitious, impressive, and beautiful. It's one of those ideas that gives me hope seeing people use their creativity, knowledge, and passion to change systems, all while building community. I want you to see these bee habitat prototypes for yourself. The Hudson Valley Bee Habitat site also has lots of information about how you can help promote healthy, solitary bee populations. Just visit hvbeehabitat.org. That's H as in Hudson, V as in valley, and the word bee, B-E-E. So the site is hvbeehabitat.org. Or just Google Hudson Valley Bee Habitat. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Stay tuned for the second half of our show where you will meet Grant Sams. He traveled to Oklahoma expecting a controversy between the oil folk and the wind folk. Also, Chantel Bilodeau, the amazing playwright who talks about storytelling and how stories break through. We'll be right back to Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio. But first, I want to remind you to visit us on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where all of the Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul programs from the last 12 and a half years are available, plus links to our guests and the work they're doing, and a lot more info, like links to the stations that carry our shows, plus a place to post comments and to donate to this cause. After all, this is full-time work, and your support can make all the difference. I look forward to hearing from you. But my biggest call is for you to support your local media, especially the kind of community radio stations that carry these programs and bring you news and music shut out of most mainstream stations. We need local voices and free voices 
and your local community radio station is perfectly poised to provide that with the help of your hands and wallets. I'm thankful to WHYS here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where Northern Spirit Radio was launched, as well as to all the 33 other stations nationwide carrying these programs. People power is what we need in this day and age, so let's all come together to support them. Back now to Citizens Climate Radio with Peterson Toscano for Spirit in Action. It's like going to a store and trying on clothes, but with the theater, you get to try on beliefs and values. Like, let me see, let me go along with this character and what they believe in and see if that works for me. It's a way of thinking about something not under pressure. You know, you don't have somebody who's saying, you need to do this, you need to to believe what I believe in. But you can, as an audience member, you can sit and experience those things and, and think about them for yourself and then make your own decisions. Today we welcome Chantelle Bilodeau. Chantelle is a playwright originally from Quebec province in Canada. She now lives outside New York City. Her award-winning plays take on climate change. They are beautiful, original, and they're moving audiences all over the world. Although she initially studied film, Chantelle believes live theater experiences create special opportunities for audiences. I really like the live aspect of it. Also, to I have this trademark, I guess, with my plays where I tend to always put a non-human character on stage, which is something that can't be done as easily in film unless you go into animation. But I had characters that were cats, unborn children, imaginary people. I also have ice as a character. I have polar bears as characters. That's something I feel like you can do in theater, but not so easily in film. Something else you should know about Chantel's climate change-themed plays. They are set in very, very cold places. Chantel loves the Arctic. It plays a major role in her work. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm in love with the Arctic. I went for the first time 10 years ago, and it's just such a fascinating place. Also, I'm from Canada, so I guess I'm used to a certain amount of cold, even though I hated it when I was there. It's not so much the cold, it's the landscape. You know, I live in in New York, so your view is blocked all the time. But when you go places where there aren't even trees, you can see so far to find these big expanses where almost nobody lives. The big sky and the big land and all of that I really love. While set in icy climates, Chantel's plays are warm. In fact, downright fiery when it comes to human conflicts. She adds even more conflict by giving the land, the sea, and animals voice and roles to play. Chantel is currently finishing a triptych, three plays, all set in the Arctic. Two are complete, and the third is currently under development. I've yet to see one of her plays on stage, but I read the first two plays, Sila and Forward. This is riveting work, which is saying something. Climate change art can easily be clunky, preachy, and shaming. It can get so caught up in the facts that it misses the point. Not so with Chantel's work. Chantel has discovered something essential for every artist doing climate-related work. With art, especially with narrative storytelling, which uh, theater is, you get to experience, depending on the project, you get to experience climate change on a more personal level, like how is it affecting somebody? It's a completely different way of approaching the the 
problem, and it's not about debating the problem. It's about understanding what it means and and figuring out what you can or want to do about it. Chantel's play Forward presents a poetic and humorous history of Norway. Reading it, I marveled over the story Chantel crafted, original, compelling. I asked Chantel about the play and her artistic process. Chantel outlined three major steps she took in writing the play. The first was research. And I started off looking at Free Jeff Nansen, who held the record of sailing closest to the North Pole for about five years. So it was a three-year expedition. He went from 1893 to 1896. The next step in Chantel's process required experiencing the setting. And then I went on an artist residency on a sailboat where we sailed for 10 days around the Svalbard Islands and into all of the fjords. So it was very, very much about the water again. Finally, and perhaps hardest of all, Chantel wrote and rewrote and then reworked the play over and over again. It was this intricate structure where the Nansen only appeared at the end in one scene. It was The play was sort of working towards that. It, it wasn't quite working. Then it, I changed it. That play went to so many different structures. It started as a, a play that had 10 scenes. Each scene was about 10 minutes long. The characters changed in everything, so in every scene. So there was no real through line. The play wasn't holding together very well. Then I changed that. The scene became much shorter and I integrated Nansen into more of the scenes and that still wasn't enough. And then eventually the play became, among other things, it became a love story between um, Nansen and the character of Ice. And that's how the, in the end, it, that's how it stayed. The first play in her Arctic cycle is called Sila. Sila examines the compelling interest shaping the future of the Canadian Arctic and local Inuit population. It's set on Baffin Island in the territory of Nunavut. The play follows a climate scientist, an Inuit activist and her daughter, two Canadian Coast Guard officers, an Inuit elder, and two polar bears. They see their values challenged. Their lives become intricately intertwined. Now, as an artist, I know it's always scary putting work like this out into the world. So I asked Chantel how audiences have been responding. It's different depending on where the work is presented. For example, Sila, the first production of Sila was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The production was a partnership between Underground Railway Theater and MIT. So a lot of the audience was scientists and people who were very educated. So they responded a lot to the policy aspect of the play. And then the same play was presented in Anchorage a few years later in Alaska, and there are some indigenous characters in the play. And that's what came out most strongly there because of the indigenous people who live in Alaska and could relate to the indigenous characters in the play who were from Canada and commented actually on how similar the issues were. In addition to creating her own work for stage, Chantal has been instrumental in bringing artists together who address climate change. She created the website artistandclimatechange.com. 
I felt very lonely because I couldn't find anybody in my immediate circle that was doing the same kind of work. And I kept thinking, this, I'm not, you know, that special. There's got to be other people out there who are doing this kind of work. So I started the blog as a way of trying to find who the other artists were, both trying to create a little bit of a community so we would know each other and have each other as a resource, but also a place where other people could find us. Because I also imagined that if I was longing to find artists doing climate change work, there must have been other artists or even people outside of the art who were interested in finding those people. And so if I could gather a lot of us in one place, then maybe it would be useful. Chantal and some of her climate artist peers have also created opportunities to bring quality theater to communities all over the world including yours. This is a project that happens every other year. We commission 50 writers from around the world to write very short plays, five-minute plays about climate change. And then we make this collection of plays available to whoever wants to put up an event in that time window um, between October and November to sort of coincide with the United Nations Cup meetings. This project will take place again in fall of 2019. Check it out for yourself to see how easy it would be to bring some of these short plays to your community. ClimateChangeTheaterAction.com That's ClimateChangeTheaterAction.com Theater is spelt the fancy way, with an R-E at the end. You can learn more about Chantel over at her website, cbilido.com, cbilido.com, or do a simple Google search for The Arctic Cycle Art, and you will find her. Most compelling stories have conflict moving the narrative along. Some might say we have had just a little too much conflict when it comes to climate change. My guest today, Grant Sams, tells us a story about Woodward, Oklahoma, an oil town with a lot of windmills. It was curious to me that a a town that ostensibly its entire identity was based on oil production would then identify itself as the wind energy capital and and i did a little bit of digging and i found out that it was actually the local government that was saying that and my thought was oh that must be to try to bring in these wind companies and this wind development but that has to be at odds with the identity that the people of the town have there's got to be conflict there and it's got to be juicy And so I went to Woodward explicitly to try to document this. I mean, in a sociologic way, in a scientific way. But at the same time, I was like, oh, I want to to dive into this. Grant shows up in Woodward, Oklahoma, and begins to get a lay of the land and the people who have lived on it for generations. If you know anything about western Oklahoma, you know that it is oil country. That is, and I don't just mean they came to do that that is why it was settled it was settled and those towns were were built where they were built because there was oil nearby and there were depots for oil workers in the late 18 early 1900s that would move out from these towns go to the oil fields work and then come back and that's where they would stay and these places were booming and they were they were places for misfits there were places for families that were really rough in it there were some of the famous uh, uh, outlaws and bank robbers of the time dillinger included actually kind of sought refuge and would hide from the law in these these oil towns that were just so chaotic you could never figure out what was going on anyway 
there were people literally sleeping underneath pool tables in bars as people were playing pool on the table above them because of all the people and the lack of infrastructure. So these towns were developed because there was oil. That's the only reason they exist. But in the last 10 years, they've seen an incredible increase in the amount of wind energy development that's gone on in that area. And the town is incredibly conservative. They do not believe in climate change. The whole thing is a liberal conspiracy by China to do whatever you know the intent of the, the hoax was and money for scientists and the whole bit. I met Grant this past fall at Washington College in the U.S. state of Maryland. What he discovered in Woodward, Oklahoma, surprised me. It also gives me hope that Americans can transform their energy economy. But before we hear about Grant's discoveries, it's important to know more about him and his field of study. Grant is not a traditional environmentalist. He recognizes many players and many factors need to be considered when looking at environmental issues. He asks a vital question. How do environmental and social issues intersect and play off of each other? Because it's very rare that you have an issue that is entirely environmental in nature. Whenever you address an environmental issue, you're always having to to chase after some kind of social or political or economic solution to addressing that challenge. For instance, when I was an undergrad, we worked on a project looking at how different burning patterns for grazing land affected uh, cattle production and, and then how that affected habitat for insects and for birds that lived on the tall grass prairie that was uh, unique to that area of Kansas that I was studying in. And that is inevitably social and political and economic because ultimately what we were asking local ranchers to do was change the way that they managed their rangeland in in such a way that wouldn't impact their 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 beef output but would be better for wildlife and better for insects and better as a uh, better for the ecosystem as a whole and we could then instead of just managing rangeland as this is where we produce beef it's we produce beef on this land but it's also a thriving ecosystem for a variety of native species that previously had been pushed out by methods of land management that weren't as beneficial on the whole he explains that the farmers and the ranchers were very receptive to the new ideas there's oftentimes a thought that people in rural spaces or that farmers and ranchers, they just want to do the job they have to do. And their job is to, you know, take something from the land and sell it on the market and make money and then, you know, rinse and repeat. It oftentimes gets overlooked that people that live in rural spaces and, and farmers and ranchers, especially, they have a connection to the land. They, they own the land that they work on. They live on that land and they're a part of a larger community of people where that is also true. And so when you approach them and say, hey, we have some ideas, if you're interested in listening to them, that might lead to a healthier, more productive landscape on all fronts, they usually say, oh my goodness, yes, you know, tell me, tell me what exactly you're talking about. And that's where we would you know, come in with the, our tips on rangeland management, and it was actually tended to be received really, really well. In his current position at Washington College, Grant is doing climate and energy research in rural Maryland. I run a rural energy research project that looks at 
helping rural municipalities to understand how much energy they use, how much carbon emissions that creates, and then I, we help them bring that down through various clean energy and energy conservation methods. Grant's studies in sociology helps him to be observant and sensitive towards a community's identity. And there's a concept in sociology, there's a few, but there's, a, there's one in particular called sense of place. And it basically says that people don't just live in an area. They form connections and they form identities, both individual and collective, that are based on that place, that space, and the properties that are unique to it. These are powerful forces merging, identity and economy. When talking to Grant, it reminded me of the sheep and cattle wars in the western USA over a hundred years ago. Conflicts regarding grazing lands erupted between cattle ranchers and sheep herders. Shortly after the American War and up until the 1920s, these two factions fought over land rights. Their disagreements escalated into armed conflict. It led to the death of over 50 men, and approximately 50,000 sheep were killed in the fighting. Now, Woodward, Oklahoma is an oil town, has been for a long time. So what did Grant discover when he did his graduate work there? How do the promoters of oil and wind coexist? I ended up going over the entire summer. I stayed in the entire summer in a trailer park in Woodward, Oklahoma, and I started, I started researching and interviewing people. And then I discovered very quickly that there was no conflict or, or exceedingly little conflict, which was surprising to me because these two things are supposed to clash. Oil has been king in Woodward, yet Grant found there was room for wind, too. In fact, he met lots of people enthusiastic about the new wind technology. This seems to have a lot to do with identity. But at the same time, they were like, oh, wind energy, that's cool. Bring it on. And that was incredibly confusing to me because I'm like, no, 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 you guys are conservative. You're a red state. You don't believe in climate change. You drill for oil. Wind is for the liberal blue Democrats that believe in climate change and want to save the planet. How do these things mesh together? And it confused me for a really long time until I interviewed one particular person. He mentioned something about how people oftentimes think that their oil past and their wind future have to conflict. And in the back of my head, I was thinking, well, yeah, that would be me. He said, the thing about that that people don't understand is that we're not really an oil town. We're an energy town. He said, the, the, he, he went on to explain that the price of oil goes up and down based on, in his words, what some king over in Saudi Arabia says. But what he says doesn't change that the wind blows here. We've had the oil, we've had the gas, and now we have the wind. And if you'd be so inclined, I would also love to take the solar, and I would also like to take the geothermal and the hydroelectric, and is there anything else you can give us? Because as I came to find out, their identity was about producing energy and shipping it out to power an entire nation. The people of Woodward, while being, while it's true that it's incredibly conservative, it's incredibly rural, and climate denial is incredibly high, climate change is an incredibly dirty word. I found two people that would talk to me about it in whispers, even though we were the only two people in the room. That's, that's, how, that's how dirty of a word climate change was. And that's all true, but at the same time, almost nobody saw wind as a negative thing. 
their connection to the place that they lived, it was about powering a nation both with food and with energy. And they would say, well, yeah, we have a ton of wind, so bring it on. This is what we do. It's who we are. And that, that ended up being the, the, the reason for the lack of conflict. Interestingly, these days in rural Maryland, Grant observes a strong resistance to installing wind turbines. Sense of self and long-held identities are clashing with renewable energy technologies. The area of rural eastern Maryland that I live in is seeing a lot of requests from developers who want to build uh, wind, both onshore and offshore, that want to build solar farms. And most of that energy is being cited here, but is meant to power, you know, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, the big cities. There are some people that want to see that change. There are some people that don't want to see that change. The There can be a lot of acrimony, really, over the... Uh, the, the tension between those two groups. There's a lot of perception that the companies are trying to come in, they're trying to build and develop these projects and trample on the, the wishes and the desires and the input that local people want to give these projects. The, the general objection that I hear in this area to building out clean energy is that we, we farm here, we have great farmland and we grow food for an entire nation and you're gonna tear that up to try to install a bunch of weird gizmos and gadgets that we don't really understand why that has to be here. You're, you're messing up who we are and you're messing up this place. That's, that sense of place starts to come back into it. Grant is committed to seeing renewable energy take hold all over the USA, but he's also aware of the complications and challenges. Grant is looking at possible solutions. There are ways you can mitigate that. If it's for a local municipality, it makes it a little bit easier. If it's sited on what we call a brownfield, which is a, a plot of land that maybe was used for industrial use or maybe pesticide production, chemical production, it's not good for growing food on. You can put clean energy there and people are a little more okay with it. So we're going to help towns to continue to, to look at their energy usage, but we're also going to start doing research in this part of the nation in trying to figure out how we can overcome those barriers. There's really two things we want. One is we know we need clean energy. And the thing about building solar and wind, if you're going to try to replace fossil fuels with it, is that they just take up more land area. You build one coal plant and you can produce gigawatts of energy on you know one multi-burner coal facility. But in that same space, if you were to put solar panels, you would only replace a fraction of, of what you can produce. Now, it's carbon-free, which is obviously the benefit, but the logical consequence is that you need more surface area to build out that production. We want to see that build out, but at the same time, we don't want local communities to get trampled in the rush to develop that. I appreciate this care and thoughtfulness in engaging with communities. Grant wants to see progress without encouraging a clean energy sprawl across rural USA. Now, back in episode 17, I asked a puzzler question about windmills. Someone named Larry hates windmills. Why? Well, Larry thinks they look ugly. I received a lot of responses, including a lovely one from Jonathan Abbott. I thought it might be a good way to end this segment of the show with this clip. 
Jonathan lives in Wales in the United Kingdom. He tells Larry about a road trip he took across the USA and the many windmills he encountered all over Oklahoma. And I was struck by the sight of wind turbines next to an oil pump. You know, a pump jack. They're all over the the West. Um, Nodding Donkey is another name for them. They're familiar, they're iconic, they're redolent of US industrial history. But are you really telling me that the elegant, silent, clean, modern turbine uh, is, is somehow uglier than this noisy, smelly, dirty, wasteful bit of kit, which the pump jack is? It's not so great. Oklahoma now produces 28% of its power from wind and has the capacity to provide 10% of all U.S. energy. And this is the heart of Trump country, where people don't believe in climate change. They're not motivated mostly by the desire to reduce emissions. Like other states, its leaders see tapping the wind as an economic strategy. Wind energy is secure, it's clean, inexhaustible. The costs have plummeted in recent years. So even to the unromantic Midwesterner, even to you, Larry, and you might be a romantic, that is strangely beautiful. If you want to learn more about Grant Sams and the work he's doing, visit his website, grantsams.com. Sams is spelled with two M's, grantsams.com. And thank you for listening to this episode of Spirit in Action. My name is Peter Santoscano. If you like Citizens Climate Radio, you can find us wherever you get podcasts. Like, literally, wherever you get podcasts. Thanks again to Peter Santoscano for sitting in today for me for Spirit in Action. It was really an awesome program today. We're so fortunate to have Peterson pulling for the healing of the earth. I'll be back next week, so meet me here then for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.